Hello, hi everyone. Uh, thank you so much for coming here today. Um, before we begin, I'll just do a bit of the housework. Um, my name is Sammy Shah, and I will be uh, the moderator slash MC of the session, the session being titled Coming of Age in the War on Terror. It'll be an interview with the author of this fantastic book, Coming of Age in the War on Terror, uh, by Randa Abdel Fateh. Uh, and I will do her introductions in a moment. Before that, of course, we acknowledge the Ghana people are the traditional custodians of the Adelaide Plains and pay respects to elders past, present, and future. We recognize and respect their cultural heritage, beliefs, and relationship with the land. We acknowledge that they are of continuing importance to the Ghana people living today. Uh, thank you for attending Adelaide Writers Week. And whilst it's great to see you here, we need to ensure everyone is physically distanced. This is crucial as it is a key condition of our COVID management plan approved by SA Health. Uh, so before we start, especially for those standing, please move apart and ensure you maintain social distance. Thank you and hopefully we can get started in a moment. Uh, we also ask you to support our authors by purchasing books at the book tent. Uh, once this is over, uh, Randa and I will be over there uh, signing copies of the books uh, that are available at the book tent. Uh, Randa will, of course, sign her book. I will sign mine and anyone else's if you want me to sign it. I'm neither of us are very picky about that, I believe. Um, and, uh, and yes, I, I suppose we can go from there. I'll begin by introducing, of course, the, uh, the guest of honor at this event. Uh, Randa Abdul Fateh is an academic human rights advocate former lawyer, mother of four children, and the award-winning author of 11 novels, published and translated in over 20 countries. Randa also writes across a wide range of genres, most recently publishing Arab, Australian, Other, Stories on Race and Identity, and, of course, her latest book, Coming of Age in the War on Terror. Thank you so much for coming here, Randa. Thank you so much for having me. Um, all right, so... I want to get into the book, and I want to get into a lot of the things that the book is about. But before I do that, there's a portion of the book right at the start where you asked uh, university, uh, no, not university, high school students to write poems about, uh, with the title, This is Australia. Their definitions of Australia, their understanding of what is Australia. Uh, there's several poems in here, and they're all remarkable, but there's two that I, you know, one that I particularly like and I ask you to read, and one other of your choosing. Sure. So if you could just read those out to us. These are uh, high school students writing about this is Australia. Okay. What better way to start than a poetry recital? So this is by Fatma, who's 16, Lebanese Australian Muslim. She writes, this is Australia, bunning snags and meat pies, ice addicts and druggies. Homelessness is there, but no one really cares. Just stereotypes at the perfect Aussie. Domestic violence is high, women die. What are we doing about it? Another hotline. This is Australia, natives invaded, yeah. People clear the streets as the unprivileged start to sleep, yeah. Gang violence is high, yeah. Everyone is in disguise. This is Australia. Healthy heralds abandoned. Taxes are high. Where does it fly? 30 million cut from NDIS funding to go to corporate companies. Farmers are struggling. Coles is rumbling. Plastic bag ban. Save our turtles or die trying. This is Australia. Coward punches are tearing us, yeah. And then, it was a remarkable girl. And then this one is from... Nick, who's 17, Anglo-Australian, Anglican. 
This is Australia. We're not really nice to Aboriginals. The Queen is our God. We really enjoy alcohol. Unjustifiably patriotic. Tony Abbott ate a raw onion. <laughs> so I suppose that kind of brings me to my first question, which is one of the things we always end up asking whenever there's a census or whenever the ABC does their ABC talks thing where they go across the whole country and they ask everyone different questions about Australia and Australianness, what it means to be Australian. One of the first questions that always comes up um, is, is Australia racist? What happens when you're confronted with that question? I scream with rage <laughs> um, because it's the most idiotic question. It's the wrong question to ask. Um, it's a question that assumes or presumes that this is debatable. This is a country that is founded on race. The, every, the logic of this country, its structures as Indigenous scholars and activists have been saying since, since its foundation is based on race. And so the question is not, is Australia racist? It's what are we going to do about it? How are we going to dismantle these racist structures? And also what's so infuriating about these constant, incessant debates about whether we are a racist country is that it's always framed from the point of view of the white majority. It's framed from their paranoia and their distress about being accused of being racists, rather than being framed from the point of view of indigenous people. Because if it was framed from the point of view of those whose land has been stolen from them, whose children have been were stolen in the name of racial purity, um, apparently civilized in the name of racial purity, then it wouldn't be a question it would have already been answered in the evidence that we see on a daily basis in the continuing settler colonial violence that the owners of this land are still subjected to. So I think the issue is from whose point of view is this question being raised? Is it from the point of view of indigenous people or minorities or refugees or the marginalized? And that's why I think the whole debate needs to be reframed. So then kind of taking a step forward from there, your work, your work focuses on Muslims, Muslim community, Muslim persecution, uh, Muslim reaction to being persecuted, etc. Um, but one of the interesting things I found was right away in the, in the introduction, you make clear that this is a book about racism within a Muslim context, what Muslims are experiencing. Uh, but one of the critiques or defenses you know, against Muslim persecution that comes up quite often is people will say, um, yes, but Islam isn't a race, mm -hmm. it's a religion. So how can we be racist against Muslims where being um, bigoted against religion, maybe, but not racist. Mm. How do you explain that? Okay, so there's a lot to unpack there. So when I, 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 was a, I um, worked as a lawyer for 10 years, but I was working in anti-racism spaces, mainly through my writing and visiting schools, and I had a very naive idea of what race meant as a Muslim fighting Islamophobia. Um, you know, I, I, I didn't understand that when, when I have to understand Islamophobia, I can't just look at it from the point of view of what's happening to Muslims. So what happened was I started a PhD. I wanted to understand Islamophobia from the point of view of Islamophobes. This was in 2012. Um, and I wanted to understand what, what, what had, how had people who um, were against um, Muslims, against immigration, against multiculturalism, how had they been socialized? What was the logic behind their arguments and their thinking? And what soon became apparent to me that 
was that I could not understand Islamophobia if I did not start from the very beginning, if I didn't peel back the onion layers of race in this country. Because so often, so often, what we hear is, it's just your turn. Oh, the Italians had it, and the Greeks had it, and now it's your turn. You know, the Asians had it with Pauline Hansen, and, you know, Pauline Hansen has switched from Asians to Muslims anyway, so, you know, it's just your turn. What that fails to understand is, why does Australia always need somebody? as an other. So rather than put the, the onus on marginalised communities to understand why it is that they are a problem, I flipped it and I thought, well, why does Australia always have a problem with a community? What is it about Australia and its foundation and its um, relationship and understanding of race that means that there always has to be a problem people? So that meant for me understanding what race is in this country, which led me, me to understanding that Islamophobia was not about Muslims, because I can tell you as someone who's been in this space since I was in high school, you know, being, I've, I, you know, I was, I grew up, I knew I was going to be a lawyer. I was always argumentative. I always had that fighting spirit. So I've been fighting f since forever. But what I soon understood was, it doesn't matter how many times I presented you with the real definition of jihad, or how many times I showed you so-called moderate Muslims, or how many times I reassured you about the statistics about, um, you know, the, the statistical probability about terrorism. It didn't matter how much, how many facts I threw at you. The issue was never about Muslims per se. It was never about Islam. It was always about race and about what it meant to be in this country, about, you know, what whiteness meant in this country. And so that's how I understood, well, what, what is Australia? It's, it was founded as a British colony. Okay, so what does that mean? Then I have to go back to understand what was imperialism, what was colonialism. That meant going back even further to understand what race meant to the colonizers of this country. And that was talking about the colonial matrix of power from Europe, the relationship with the Islamic world. So that's a really difficult stuff to talk about in a world where everything is squashed into a soundbite or a tweet. So, you know, I'm surprised you're all here, you know, at 5 p.m. wanting to listen to someone talk about the war on terror because it's not an easy topic to unpack and very often you're, you're shut down because so, as so many anti-racism activists will tell you, people don't want to hear about history. They, want, they, they think Islamophobia started in, in, at, on 9-11. Or if we're talking about deaths in custody, they think it started with the, um, you know, the, uh, the inquest into deaths in custody or stolen generations started with the bringing of them home report. People don't want to peel back and go into the historical record to understand how we got here. And so when people say to me, oh, you can't be racist towards Islam, uh, Muslims because Islam is not a race. I say, well, race has never been about religion um, per se. It's never been about defining people in terms of their race. You can be racialized. What do I mean by that? Someone whose name is Muhammad, who has a beard, or a woman who wears hijab, she has no ownership over how people are going to perceive her. She is racialized or he is racialized because he is associated with Muslimness. You know, after 9-11, there was a Sikh taxi driver in New York who was murdered because he was assumed to be a Muslim. Isn't that Islamophobia? The presumption of Muslimness was thrown onto this man because of his turban. So racialization, that process of racialization is what we talk about when we talk about Islamophobia. I actually don't like the word Islamophobia because it immediately, the, the literal, and I, and I got this all the time when I was interviewing people with my PhD, the literal meaning people say is, oh, you're, uh, you're, there's a fear of Islam. And it's so much more than that. 
Because if you frame it as a fear of Islam, what you get is a lot of Muslims, and I know this because I used to be one of them when I started my activism, was always about trying to reassure you that you had nothing to fear, which always put the onus back on us to show we're moderate, we're safe. And that never ever dismantles racism or actually puts the onus back on the white population to think about why you need a problem in order to prop up your identity project. So I hope that unpacks it a little bit. Well, I mean, it, it kind of connects it a little bit in terms of, you know, when we're talking about racism in Australian context or something, particularly with Muslim people at the focus of it. Um, so is the racism you experience as a Muslim or, you know, Muslim racism different from the racism you might experience as a Lebanese Australian, or as an Arab Australian, or just as an Arab migrant, or, or a Pakistani or an Indian or something like that? Is there a different level, layer, texture to that? I'm talking about racism like it's a wine, but, um, mm -hmm. uh, you know, in terms of the, how does it manifest itself mm -hmm. that distinguishes it from other types? Yeah, so that's a really good question because it brings us right to the issue of intersectionality, which of course has become this buzzword, but if you really understand it, has so much potential to unpack what the experience and lived experience of racism is. So in my, in my book, you know, I, I went out, you know, the best thing as a researcher is to go out into the field and come back surprised about your results. And so I went out thinking all Muslims that I interview, all the Muslim students I interviewed would have the exact, you know, pretty much the same experiences in Sydney. Of course, I was quickly, um, you know, that was quickly uh, proven to me to be wrong because a Pakistani Muslim in a fairly middle-class private school in the Sydney suburbs had less, you know, almost hardly any understanding of the policing surveillance gaze of the war on terror than a Lebanese Muslim in southwestern Sydney, where the counter-terrorism raids occurred, for example. A Muslim girl wearing the hijab who had darker skin than a Muslim girl without hijab, with lighter skin, had very different experiences. Class mattered, gender mattered, ethnicity mattered. So that's when we talk about um, you know, these lived experiences. Once somebody was identifiable as a Muslim, those other layers definitely had an impact, but the overarching narrative of terrorist immediately came into, the, into question. You know, um, I, there are many times that my Palestinianness has been more of a problem than my Muslimness. Mm -hmm. You know, after I've gone, you know, had an interview um, and I get the, the hate mail, for example, in my emails, you know, it's sort of like you could almost do inbo an inbox with, you know, against the Palestinian in me, against the Muslim in me, against the Muslim woman in me, <laughs> against the Egyptian in me. And then there were those, you know, for whom it's all muddled together. Um, you know, the Cronulla riots are a perfect example of how this works. So you had, you know, a throng of 5,000, um, you know, white people in, you know, in um, Sydney, uh, Cronulla Beach, who were basically you know, morphed, leb, it was leb bashing, Muslim bashing, wog bashing. Um, you know, there were, there were Pakistan, two Pakistani guys who were beaten up on that day. Or, you know, just brown people became this, you know, one, one, you know, target. But the main issue was that they were all under the label Arab, Lebanese or Muslim. One of the things that is uh, really interesting about this cover is uh, in the book title, Coming of Age in the War on Terror, it's the first time in a very long time I heard the phrase war on terror again. Yeah. And, and it kind of almost felt um, nostalgic, <laughs> you know, because <laughs> I'm like, oh, I remember the war on terror. That was a thing. But is that still a thing? Is, is, the, 
is you talking about this now, you yeah. talking about something that, you know, one of the things you mentioned is it used to be the Greeks and Italians, then it was the Vietnamese, then it was the Chinese, then it was the Indians, like the racism moves. Yeah. Has it moved on from the Muslims and, and, and the South Asians and the Arabs, and now it's the South Sudanese, and the war on terror is over, and now it's, you know, gangs or whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, is this still relevant? Um, so there's a couple of things to unpack in that. The first is, even if it moves on, if the target moves, the racial logics are the same. The, the rhetoric is the same. You're taking over. You don't have the same values as us. They don't fit in. Mm -hmm. They're criminals. Um, they've, you know, you, you know the, the ones who rise to the top are the ones who are the most palatable, the ones who are depoliticised. The same racial logics are there. The target just moves according to who is more visible. And I talk about that a lot in my PhD, that there are some communities at particular moments in particular contexts who become more visible, who become... People are, are more heightened to their presence and their presence becomes a problem and that changes with political context um, with the shifts in immigration with shifts in um, the refugees that are coming so that you know one time it's the Afghans then it's the South Sudanese it depends on the state you're in the city you're in so all of that changes. but the racial logics are the same the racial logics are the same um, and yeah so the idea of the war on terror I mean it's the 20th anniversary this year what I find what I think so many of us have failed to really take stock of, um, which I think is so much more dangerous and innocuous, is that all the civil, well, we don't have a Civil Rights Act here, but all the f basic freedoms that we took for granted that have been steadily eroded in the name of national security through laws and through policies, particularly, you know, in the first stages of the war on terror, we, we have, I, I don't know if it's still the case, but at one point we had the most counter-terrorism laws in the world, more than the US and more than the UK. Um, and we are, as a, as a country, very, very compliant and willing to have our rights taken away. Um, we agitate far less than other countries. So the enormous range of rights and um, freedoms that we take for granted that have been eroded in the name of national security, once upon a time, we could talk about that openly as being something that was being done in the name of the war on terror. But now that's, it's just become a background thing. And this is what's so worrying, that we've forgotten how much we've lost in the name of national security. And we've seen it. I mean, I published this, I sent the manuscript before COVID, but it's you know, alarming for me to see how the language of um, Australian values has shifted so we have the language of extremism and radicalism shifted from the language used and weaponized against muslim communities to now when we see in COVID, to being used and weaponized against um well just before COVID, against people striking against climate change so you had politicians talking about um the greenies as you know uh, anarchists and extremists um you know and radicals and and how this war on terror language shifts it shifts to stifle and um, contain dissent. And then when you had the protesting at the time of COVID being weaponized against Black Lives Matter protesters. So what for me is worrying is that we think that the war on terror is something that's in the past, but we are living with the consequences of a population that allowed so much to happen in the name of national security. And why? Oh, because it was a Muslim community problem thing. It wasn't affecting us. Well, now it's affecting you as a general population. 
you know, there were times uh, in the fa past few years where, you know, there were environmental activists and, um, and you know, um, people who were protesting against various causes who were talking about the erosion and the media, the raids on the media. Suddenly, there was, you know, huge mainstream debate about how, you know, freedom of speech was being curtailed and our freedoms, um, you know, our freedom of movement and our freedom to protest. And, you know, people like me in the Muslim community were sitting back and laughing, thinking, oh, you think? You know, when it was happening to us, you didn't, you didn't say anything. As a journalist, you didn't say anything. But now that it's happening to the mainstream, now you're worried about it, well, you let it happen for so long. So, so it, maybe part of that is, and I'm playing devil's advocate here, but maybe part of that is just a lack of knowledge or awareness about just how curtailed the freedoms were for some communities versus the rest of the country, right? Like if you are growing up as a, as a Lebanese teenager, teenage boy in Lakimba, your Australia is a very different experience than the one others will have, particularly in the early mid 2000s. What, what was the difference? How curtailed were those freedoms? Well, even now there are control orders um, f on 14 year olds. And you know, I, again, and I always say this, anything that is happening to Muslim communities was practiced and perfected on indigenous communities first. So it's not as though we're inventing, um, you know, being the targets of the racial state here. So it's something that indigenous communities have lived with and live with all this time, you know. And now, and now with the war on terror, you had these, you know, outrageous, um, you know, the surveillance uh, gaze and the surveillance state um, and that, uh, that state apparatus on young Muslims. So I remember very clearly in 2015, after the tragic shooting um, of uh, police accountant Curtis Cheng in Parramatta by, um, by a young Australian Afghan boy, only 15 years old. And I was very much involved in the community at that time because my father-in-law was um, a part of the committee of the mosque um, in Parramatta where this event um, was, what, where this event was connected, because he had prayed at that mosque, and so I could see firsthand a lot of the different sort of political things that were happening and the power plays that were happening, the way that the police um, and politicians were in the ear of the Muslim community leaders to, um, you know, police the, pop the the people that were coming into the mosque to watch out basically using them as, um, you know, that, that idea of community partnership, policing partnership, where you are spying on your own community. Um, and very often people don't want to do that, but the consequences of not doing it, you know, they know what that, that is. Um, and then I could see from the school perspective, because my, mom, my mom's a school principal and a lot of my family are involved in schools, how that impacted on young people, particularly in those, in those suburbs. Um, so you had the counter-terrorism raids. One of the students I interviewed um, spoke about being at one of the schools where there was a huge moral panic about prayer rooms and um, in Sydney. And, you know, the Murdoch papers had a field day with it. It even got coverage in some international papers. This idea that jihad, that there were jihadis preaching violence in, in prayer rooms in state schools. You know, this idea, suddenly we had the idea that we need to be into schools. There were headlines, can you spot a jihadi? Um, checklists, you know, they were, I would have been a jihadi in high school. You know, I went through my own phase of, you know, uh, uh, quite extreme sort of form of religiosity that probably would have, you know, by the checklist, this ridiculous checklist that they had, might have rung some alarm bells. One of the students said to me that after that happened, the media was at the, the front of their school gates for a week. 
And so the kids had to try and circumvent the media by taking alternative routes, you know, not take the bus, walk a couple of streets further down just so that they could go the back way to school. Um, having to suppress their voice in class so that they wouldn't be suspected of, of any kind of sympathy um, or being thought that they were being radicalised. So this self-policing of your own voice as a teenager is horrible to think about. Especially when you're a teenager, that's the time you should be experimenting with your politics. It should be the time that you're a radical. I hope to God that you're a radical as a teenager, that that is not stifled out of you. Um, but the way that we are, the state that we're living in now, and especially the idea of this neoliberal individual, individual sort of, uh, um, this idea that you ha can be a pol you can be political, but only as an individual, not as a collective. That's too dangerous. It is seeping into a lot of young people. Well, I mean, I, from the people that I spoke to, who think that, you know, they have to stifle their voice, and so so many of them that I spoke to were at that time, uh, you know, teenagers, year nine, year eight, who just felt um, muffled that they couldn't be themselves. So one of the things I spoke to, um, uh, I, a. a American diplomat who served during the Cold War with Russia a few years ago. Uh, one of the things that he said, well, I was asking him about you know, American excesses in South America and Iran and all these places, and he said, look, it was a Cold War. We did what had to be done. You can't judge us with the same lens. I disagreed with him, but if you talk to people now who were integral in the creation of some of the war on terror rules of like this kind of, this kind of stuff, their defense would be well, 9-11 just happened, the Bali bombings happened, what are we supposed to do? Mm. There's kids joining ISIS. What, what, what is a better way of, of, um, of protecting Australia while also respecting the rights of individual Muslims mm. within Australia? I would only follow that logic if after the Cronulla riots, leaders got together and said, hey, white leaders, what's happening to your young people? How can you have 5,000 people descend on a beach and bash up Lebos? We need to go into schools and do some counter-radicalisation programs with Anglo students. I would only follow that logic if in the... With Christchurch, the for example. Christchurch, yeah. with the clear evidence of the rise of white supremacist right-wing groups, and they have been rising because the surveillance gaze was firmly fixed on the Muslim community while they were, were being enabled by political rhetoric and also being ignored by... This, by the state. I would only follow that logic if then, after something like the Christchurch attack, we suddenly had policies in schools saying, okay, what are we doing about white supremacy and the grip that it's having? What, aren't our white Anglo students on a conveyor belt to, to white radicalization? It doesn't happen because race is at the center of this. It really is. And that's how I, that, that for me is the evidence that these were racialized policies. You know, None of this, when you talk to people who were part of, you know, creating these policies and, um, you know, it's, it, there's no transparency either. We don't know which policies are in schools, which schools they're in. Um, you know, I, I, I could trace with, with the school communities working together um, document, which is a, a national policy about um, counter-radicalisation within schools, which I, you know, detail in the book. I think there was a there was um, a mention of it um, in a Senate hearing that it's still being that it's still being um, implemented in some schools, but we don't know which schools or what's happening. 
most of the people that, I, that I've spoken to or have known through my own activism working at universities, because this is a cottage industry, um, you know, academics are heavily involved in this, they're very well-meaning. You know, they've sat down with me and said, look, Rhonda, it's not about race, it's not about racism or Islamophobia. Um, you know, what they fail to understand is the power of language and language sticks. And for me, it's not... I am less interested in a counter-terrorism raid and the effect that has. Of course, I'm interested, but I'm less interested in the theatrics and drama of that than I am in the very slow cooking um, language that we use that creates an impression of a community. And that's what I detail in the book, that most of these kids have no idea about these policies, but they understand that when the word Muslim is raised in the media, the immediate signifier for a lot of people is terrorist. Muslim kids told me that and non-Muslim kids told me that. They openly said to me, when I think of a terrorist, I can't help but the first thing that pops into my head is a Muslim. Okay, so that kid wasn't born that way. There has been a lot of work done that has accumulated that impression into somebody's mind. And that's what interests me more, how this has happened over a long period of time by well-meaning people who thought that they were responding, um, you know, to to the risk of, count, of, of homegrown terrorism. But if you look further, there is a lot that was happening there that I'm very cynical about in terms of those intentions. What changes that? Is it, is it you know, prominent Muslims like yourself, like, like Nazim Hussein going on I'm a Celebrity, like Walid being on the project, um, you know, becoming the kind of role models and symbols of, not even role models, but like symbols of normalized Muslim behavior or do we need a, a program? Do we need something more concentrated, more you know, top-down, government-initiated or something? It's an interesting question because once I was one of those moderates, you know, because I had, I, I grew up in, well, I came of age at the time of the Gulf War. So I remember well in the 90s as a teenager, a pig's head thrown in the office window of our Islamic school in Melbourne, um, graffiti on the walls, go back home wogs, go back home terrorists. You know, that was my world as a teenager, the idea that I was a Saddam Hussein loyalist and all the prejudices that came with the Gulf War. And at that time, we're talking about the 90s here, the only way that you could have any imprint in the media was with a letter to the editor. That was the extent of your ability to respond or speak back. And so we, we were trained by our teachers to write letters to the editor. And it was always, because we were still a very young community, um, from the point of view of correcting the record correcting the misinformation. I was trained at the beginning and then after 9-11, it was this horror, oh my goodness, you know, people think Islam condones terrorism. And so it was a very naive activism then, which was let's justify, let's, let's correct the record, let's explain what Islam is really about. Um, and we, f we unfortunately reinforced one of the the most terrible things to come out of the war on terror in terms of the discourse, which is the moderate extremist binary. And I am very comfortable, or not comfortable, I am very, um, I will openly say that I did participate in that naively at that time, thinking that's the way that you respond. You disassociate yourself from those extremist elements, not realizing these are political categories, not religious ones. So I don't like the idea that you can change all this by just throwing more moderate Muslims, because what, what inevitably happens is that they are depoliticized Muslims. 
There are people who are not going to talk about empire or Palestine. There are people who are not going to um, apologise for, um, you know, giving a green light to Collingwood Football Club. There are people who are not going to push those boundaries because they're going to play it safe because that's what the mainstream space expects of you. And so I don't think that's the way to go. It's the way to go if you want to tackle this as an individual and survive as an individual. But if you want to tackle it, for me, don't involve government. It's about the community and collective solidarities and revolution. That's <laughs> like you just got to have a radical approach to it. So, one of the one of the things that I, fi I found really interesting uh, was it's just a small section in the book, but it's eating bacon to fit in. Oh yeah, yeah, you know about that. Yeah, well, <laughs> as a, as a bacon fan, yes. Yeah. But I will. So uh, the thing I found really interesting about it, though, was what you were just mentioning—that pressure to fit in, that pressure to uh, show that you're a good Muslim and how much of that then translates into sacrificing of identity, a sacrificing mm -hmm. of self. Are the young Muslims of today, the, the, the teenagers that you're talking to now, they seem to me, and this might be just based on my own impression, that they're so much more confident, they're so much mm -hmm. more self-assured in who they are and how they present themselves, or am I wrong in that? Is there still that insecurity? There's both, honestly, and you know, as the mother of, of four children and two of them, one 15, one almost 13, Identity is so fluid and so it changes, you know, it's it's never one thing at one time. It's always context dependent. And that's what I found with another thing that surprised me is that I couldn't go in thinking that somebody I spoke to who's always confident in their identity is always going to be confident in their identity. And so, for example, yeah, there were people who said to me when I'm at home or when I'm at school, um, you know, I anglicised my name. One of the most poignant stories was a boy who is Iranian background who actually was advised by his parents to call himself Christian at school. So it wasn't just that he anglicised it, he stamped himself as a Christian at school. Um, I think his name was Muhammad, I can't remember, but it, for me it was just so poignant that he, that he felt the need to do that, but he was aware of the sacrifice that that required. Um, then there were others who were defiantly Muslim um, at some times, but other times felt actually that it was a burden to constantly have to be that confident because they were still figuring out what being a Muslim meant to them. That for me was actually probably the most interesting, that sometimes these conversations and pressures that come from outside on these young people were, were experienced as frustrating because they still didn't know what being a Muslim meant to them. And so there were some, some of them that I've interviewed in the book who, who said to me, you know, I don't, I'm not particularly religious, but when I'm the only Muslim student in a classroom and these debates are, are you know, being had, I feel a responsibility suddenly that I have to be the Muslim spokesperson and suddenly I'm defending a religion that I'm a bit ambivalent about, but that's the role I have to take. And so there's no space for me to figure out what being a Muslim means to me anyway. And that, for me, was really sad that because it, it, it labels, it burdens young people with a responsibility they should not have to bear. And I, I, I take your point that there does seem to be a... I think that to be a, a Muslim, my kids always say it to me now, is it better now or when you were growing up? I think Islamophobia and racism has escalated since I was growing up. There's so, so much evidence of that, but, I mean, Trump normalised white supremacy in our public spaces. It's not that 
this all didn't exist before, but it was a lot less... There were more consequences of saying it openly. Um, it's become normalised. You know, one girl I spoke to said, and she's not a Muslim, she said to me, the other day I, I saw um, a Nazi being interviewed on Sky News. It was Blair Cottrell. It was a few, few years ago, two, two or three years ago. And she said, and I didn't even feel shocked. She said, that's the new normal. Um, and she felt angered by that, that it was normal to see a Nazi on television. That came up a lot. What for me was so... I hate, I hate to romanticise youth either because I think it puts a lot of pressure on them. But what gave me um, some comfort is that, like you said, there's a different level of confidence. But I think that confidence comes not that racism is, is less but that the collective spaces are more, that the solidarity is stronger now, that the ability to speak back, the platforms, have really opened up because of social media. And so the public square has shifted from, you know, the offices of Murdoch empires to Twitter or to TikTok. And we can see what young people do on those spaces. You know, I'm constantly harassing my kids to get off their phone. Um, but I also know that that phone is a is a pathway and a gateway for them to actually be more be more informed as well. One of the um, interesting things that you mentioned there was being more informed in in terms of uh, you know the more information we have about these things, the more we are able to improve. Something I found really fascinating in this book were the several examples of things like Tony Jones on Q and A. You know, oh, yeah. just saying boneheadedly anti-Islamic things. Um, the amount of times, you know, not just Sky News, because it's easy to vilify them, but also the ABC and everyone mm -hmm. else have gotten it wrong. So obviously, how do you inform the gatekeepers of how to be better at keeping the gate? Yeah, well, I mean, like, it's, it's always excruciating to it's always more excruciating to deal with so-called liberal white spaces than it is to deal with you know rabid you know the daily telegraph or something like that at least you know where you stand with the exactly far right. yeah. exactly <laughs> but the well-meaning i'm not racist but or you know the well-meaning white liberal journalist is always harder to deal with um and you know the abc is a perfect example where you know they'll you know they'll have you on their show um they'll give you that space that platform but then there's just things that are really discomforting and exhausting to have to explain. You know, I'll never forget going on Late Line and you have to do that small talk, you know, mm -hmm. as the countdown is coming, you're in that, you know, you've got, you're hooked up with the mic. It's so awkward. And, um, you know, I, I don't like small talk usually, but having to do it when you're about to launch into, I think it was an interview about Trump and I was against someone, um, against, yeah, it was like a debate. And... Um, I can't do that kind of that small talk and and then and then the host said to me also oh, what does islamophobia mean and literally the guy started his countdown 50 <laughs> seconds and explain your thesis yeah, subject yes, yeah, yeah and i started to explain and she just cut me off and said doesn't it just mean fear of muslims and i was trying to explain and then he's like okay we're going to stop now and we're starting the interview and it just threw me off you know because i thought I didn't expect her to be an ally, but I didn't expect her as well to just spout the kind of stuff that I'd heard from the people I'd interviewed in my PhD. Mm -hmm. um, and sometimes it, that can be very frustrating to have to contend with. I don't know how to improve it. Um, I hate the idea of you know diversity policies and inclusivity policies because it doesn't really change the top. 
just change a little bit of the bottom. Like some people have said, it just adds a bit of spice, you know, yeah. a bit of pepper to the white, you know, salt, but <laughs> it's not really changing the structures. Um, uh, we can keep talking about some of those details in the book, but one of the things I find interesting about, and it's always upsetting to me that more people don't get into that, is things like language and writing process. And you've written 11 books now, um, which means there's more, down, you know, probably working on the next one as we speak. What's the writing process? When do you, you've got four kids, when do you write? Oh, it's so nice to be asked a question about that. <laughs> I learned so quickly to just write when I can, where I can. Um, so when, when I started writing, I was working as a lawyer. I wrote a lot of my first drafts on the train ride to and from work because it was an hour trip. And I just became one of those people who could not have the luxury of thinking, I need a nice cafe with good light, great coffee, or you know, a beautiful desk and study room. I had to do it in between um, the routine of my kids. And so I became very flexible in that way. Um, and so I've learned very well how to zone out the rest of the world. That's my writing process, really. Um, this book was a bit different because I was dealing with raw data, so interviews, transcripts, pulling all of that apart. That was amazing work. Um, I had so many more transcripts that I couldn't use. Uh, that was really difficult. Working with other people's words is, yeah. Well, I was going to ask you that. I mean, you, your first, was, was your first work uh, published work, uh, work of fiction? Yes. A novel? Yeah. Uh, does my head look big in this, right? Yeah. So what's the difference then in between writing fiction and nonfiction? And dare I ask, which one's easier? Um, I think nonfiction is easier yeah. for me. Um, the, the process, I mean, both, in both I'm always looking. I have to approach it as a story in both. So even with this book, I couldn't approach it as how am I going to change my reader? You know, I couldn't think about it in terms of that preachy, didactic way. Um, even though there's an insurgent tone in the book, you know, you can't take the activist out of me, um, it was still, what is the story here? And that really helped crystallise for me my purpose. And the purpose was, how can I honour the voices of these students who took me into their lives for that hour and let me interview them and then participated in my writing workshops? Um, how can I honour their voices and make sure that it's their experience that is centred here? Um, and then how can I build a story around that? So even when I started writing the book, I didn't know that I would be analysing policy. It sounds so boring, but I had to because language matters. So I had to go back and think about, well, before I even ask what does it mean to grow up as a Muslim in Australia, I have to ask what does being young mean in Australia? If I'm going to interview young people, it's not just about the stereotypes that exist around Muslims. It's also, well, what is the story around youth? And then that was really interesting because, you know, I was looking at the work of youth scholars and this idea that youth, we, we look at youth as adults in two ways. We either look at them in a very romanticised way that they are the change agents of the future and the hope, or we look at them as dangerous and subversive and needing to be contained. Then you add Muslim to that. <laughs> then you really need to contain and suppress and because they're on a conveyor belt to radicalization. And so that was really interesting. What was the story there? Uh, I'm going to ask one more question. But before I do that, uh, I'd like to open the floor for Q&A, which means there's a mic back there. Uh, if you have any questions for Randa, please make your way to the mic. Ask the question. We, more questions, the better, always. But usually what happens is I say we open the floor, floor to questions, and then everyone thinks about the question, and then 
walks across the mic and there's long, awkward moments. So I will open the floor to questions now, then ask a question of random myself to fill the time while you are walking. So just explaining that process there. Um, so get walking. Um, before we kind of get into those questions, uh, you know, language, you said language is important. Who are your language heroes? Who are the ones that when you're writing, you've got their writing in your head and you're aspiring towards that? Oh, gosh. Those, that's so hard. But So when I started writing this book, I read a lot of work by, um, you know, Aileen Morton Robinson, you know, Chelsea Bond, Amy McGuire. These are amazing, strong Indigenous women scholars and activists who just fed my intellect and pushed me pushed me to think about race in completely different ways and pushed and challenged me to think about what it means to be an ally and what it means to give, to offer solidarity with humility. Um, they're writing, and I remember writing an email to Chelsea feeling really scared <laughs> because I don't like to also burden people with an expectation of responding and, and I just, but I had read one of her articles and it, I just was, you know, those moments when you just feel so overwhelmed by someone's writing and you just want to connect with them and just, just tell them, you know, and it was, she was amazing. But yeah, her, the way that she talks about whiteness was just incredible and really moved me. And then there are writers um, like Paula Abud Hassan Hajj has had a, a huge influence, a huge influence, like a life changing influence on my writing and my thinking and my entire being. Paula Abud, Sarah Saleh. Um, so a lot of Australian Arab um, intellectuals and Edward Said, of course, is, you know, my hero, <laughs> my ultimate hero. Yeah. Um, all right, we have a question there. Hi. Um, thanks very much, both of you, for your comments and coming here to talk to us. It's just been fantastic. I just wanted to ask you about the, um, the current government's kind of naming up of the alt-right as terrorists and what is your reaction to this? Like, they're, they're, they're compiling a list of, um, you know, extreme, extreme white terrorists to ban and so on. Yeah. Do you see this as just falling into a kind of binary of moderate moderate and, and extreme extremism that you were talking about, Randa? Yeah, I think that, you know, on one level, there was like a, like almost like a gotcha moment among so many people were saying, okay, so finally, like with Brenton Tarrant, finally we're recognising that a terrorist isn't a, a Muslim, you know. On the other hand, it was, yeah, is, is this just going to be framing this as something that is just um, peripheral, that it is that it is an anomaly in Australian history and, and, and contemporary, you know, um, you know, our contem contemporary situation, that he is an aberration. Because what that does is let so many of the mainstream race, racism off the hook. And it again falls into this idea that, that ra white supremacy is extreme. And we see it, you know, poured into every structure in this country. And I'm talking about this as someone who's a writer, as someone who teaches, who's in the academic space. Everywhere I go, I encounter it. Um, and so for me, it's, it's if, if it's government, it's always going to be framed in that way because government is always going to... The state is always going to protect white supremacy. Um, so I, I feel very ambivalent about the motives for doing that because it disassociates um, the mainstream racism because they can say, oh, that's just Brenton Tarrant, but then, you know, not look at the racism in the ABC, not look at the racism in our media constantly or our political so-called, you know, liberal and spaces. Next question. Thank you. Thank you very much for everything you've been talking and 
about in the last 30, 40 minutes, you touched on many, many topics, and thank you. I kept finding myself saying yes, yes, yes. But I'd like you, if you could, to respond to a thought which I've often had, and that is that racism isn't actually an ism. It's a tool and it's a weapon. It's used by people who either want to seize control or hold control and hold power. Yeah. And that's driven not by a fear of the Irish or the, the Italians or the Greeks or the Muslim. It's driven by a fear and an ignorance of difference, no matter what that difference is. So is, 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 is racism actually a weapon? So I, I don't think that it's... When we talk about it in terms of the fear of difference, I think it, it, falls, it can fall into the trap of making it about an individual pathology that people just scared of the other. For me, what you said first is more, for me, more relevant. The idea that there is a, there is a political function to race. Race, there is a, a, you know, race is linked to capitalism, it's linked to war, it's linked to the neoliberal society that we live in now. When we look at what race does, what it offers the wider society, then we can actually understand that there is, that there is power in maintaining these structures. There is a lot to lose for the white majority in maintaining these structures. It's almost like looking at the difference between patriarchy and sexism. A lot of people focus on racism as though it was sexism, catcalls, you know, while you're walking down the street, and not the, the patriarchy that would allow someone like Christian Porter to get away with what's happened today, um, to be able to, you know, not stand down from his position of power, the way that patriarchy protects misogyny, protects, um, you know, structures of gender. So for me, it's about asking what does race do? What, what power does it maintain? Um, and for me, that is, a that is a story that is far longer than one about being scared of difference. Yeah, thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Brenda, you've got it wrong. Australia is worse than a racist country. Australia is a bigoted country mm. and becoming more so. The gentleman before me was talking about um, the other. We have a deep fear about the other. But you'll be all right because soon there'll be somebody else come along and it won't be the, uh, uh, the Muslims, as you mentioned earlier. Mm. I... I want to ask a question that is related to your comments on de-radicalisation programs. Uh, my mother was a good woman, but she was a devout evangelical Christian. To me, an evangelical anything, an evangelical liberal, an evangelical Labourite, they're all the same. They are, in fact, fundamentalist in what they're trying to do. Don't you think we'd be better off to focus on defundamentalising some of these people rather than worrying so much about de-radicalising kids who are growing up? Yeah, I think that the even... 
Like I understand your point about um, when it comes to sort of the evangelical Christian movement, for example, in America, as a Palestinian, I can tell you, I, can, I understand firsthand the impact of that because it has justified so much of the loss of Palestinian land in the name of um, support by evangelicals with um, Zionist organisations who, incidentally, these evangelicals are anti-Semitic as well. So you can see they're strange bedfellows. Um, for me, I'm less interested in devising ways to de-radicalise certain segments of the community. For me, the project has to be looking at structures of power. Um, they are one problem in the wider structures of race in this country. Um, and, when it, and I take your point about de-radicalising these ridiculous programs, de-radicalising young people. For me, that is the worst thing that you can do. We need... What scares me the most is that young people are being are being frightened off of being political. And that is the worst possible thing you can have for a country. Uh, a muted, um, compliant youth population. You know, people who, are, who go out on the streets for climate strike, um, you know, for climate strikes and are told we want, by the Prime Minister, we want um, more learning in schools, like less activism in schools. You know, for me, the, act, the learning happens at a protest. I took my kids out of school um, to attend a protest. I, I took my kids to the Invasion Day rally this year, and honestly, just that two hours there I had more impact on my daughter than a year of lecturing her about Indigenous rights. <laughs> she came home and did an essay about it. I was thinking, oh, my God, I should have done this earlier. That's where you galvanise young people. Um, and so I, I say that we need more radicalism in schools. The Australian apartheid understandably supports the Israeli apartheid. So I was going to ask you to say what uh, activism you combine with uh, Aborigines. And you partially answered my question. Any other examples? Um, so for me, you know, the, that black Palestinian solidarity is really important. And there have been lots of events that have been happening, um, you know, actual you know conferences last year in Melbourne um, and this year as um, and the year before that sorry in Melbourne and then last year as well so they have there are a lot of events but for me as a Palestinian as a Muslim I try and offer my solidarity in ways where it's not it's not publicized it's about working quietly with my own communities in the spaces and spheres of influence that I have family um, you know community where a lot of people still play and you would know this I mean mm -hmm. they still play the idea that we need to be the good migrant the grateful migrant forgetting you know Australia is a beautiful country forgetting you're living on stolen land you should understand that you're coming from a country that was stolen so it's about working quietly within my own communities to, to get them to understand that they need to pay the rent and they can't just be these meek little mm -hmm. migrants they need to understand that they have work to do here Hi, um, maybe a bit more superfluous question. Uh, we read um, Does My Head Look Big in This as part of our high school curriculum, and we also read The Kite Runner and The Diary of a Part-Time Indian. I was just wondering, do you think books like that are better at sort of normalizing like Muslim kids and native kids to Australian kids that might go to like inner city private schools that don't see much of that? Or 
is it better to be reading books that they just seem just another character and it's not part of like this identity thing? Because I know a lot of people talk about just spreading diversity in the books. Do you think it's better to have ones that focus solely on an identity or try and make everything look normal and mm -hmm. not like a struggle? That's a really interesting question. Yeah. It's a fantastic question. It actually comes like it. It, re it reflects some of the really current debates um, among, you know, writers of colour, where where we do feel sometimes the burden of representation that we need to write books that talk about the identity struggles that people have, but then we also want to write books where being Muslim is is not an issue. It just happens to be um, incidental to the character. I think we need both. Um, and I think we just need to give space to writers of colour to write the way they want to, but to expose students to that, because we know for certain that there are curriculum and certain schools that do not, that are still teaching, and I do this in my book, they are still teaching books that I was learning in year 11 and 12, and they're usually white dead men. So we need to shake that up. Hi, um, I was also one of those teenagers that read Does My Head Look Big In This back in the day. Um, it wasn't part of our high school curriculum though, I just found it. Um, and I wanted you to know that it really did make a difference in terms of um, me being able to understand um, Islam at that time. Um, you know, being a teenager after 9-11 and just being able to get that different perspective on Muslims, so thank you for that. Um, my question is, how do we get more diversity in those stories? It's probably a similar question to the girl before, um, but how do we get more diversity in, in novels, um, on TV? I, I feel like, um, as we've said, there is so many stories that focus on, um, dare I say it, white Australia. Um, and even when you look at the news, like a lot of the journalists are, um, you know, tend to be all, very similar. I think there was a report that was released last year about this. Um, so how do we encourage more stories to um, be embraced by, by schools and by the media? Yeah, so there's no shortage of stories, you know, and writers who are pushing against these white gatekeepers. Um, and it really is a structural issue. So um, we need to, to shake up the corridors of power when it comes to education so that the curriculum can change, those decisions about what students are learning. Um, and then, you know, in the media, I mean, it's such a huge issue, but like, you know, Sammy's in the media now. That, I was, I got kicked out for being okay. too diverse. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> so you can see that, you know, it, it is a huge struggle, but what we need is really it's if we want to tackle this, it's not it's not ours, it's not going to work with people of colour, um, because ultimately it's white people in those corridors of power who have to use their privilege to create um, and those spaces to sometimes cede power so that they can create platforms for people of colour. So the work needs to be done among white communities who push for changes in curriculum, push for changes in boardrooms, push for changes in media, you know, so that the that the ABC, not everybody has the same, almost the same name. I can't tell you how many times I've gone there and someone's name is James. I've been interviewed by so many James. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so we just need to have white people stand up and actually be allies in practice, not just word. Thank you. I think we have time for one final question. Yeah, thanks. Uh, I'm, I'm involved in a play, and the play takes place in Iraq in 2003. 
and we're trying to find uh, a male 20 and a, a young girl 16. And we couldn't, we got a couple of good actors, but they both took advice from friends and family that it's quite wrong for these two white people to play Middle Eastern characters. And uh, I was wondering what you thought of that. So, so there are two white characters playing Middle Eastern characters, and then you had the Iraqi. Yeah, these are Iraqi characters. Yeah. And we got some talented white people to play them, and they got advice that that would be wrong. Did you try finding any talented Iraqi yeah. people or, or, or Arab actors and, and stuff? Yes. In, in fact, the, the, the script's in Arabic. And we, Sorry? We, we were like someone who could speak Arabic, but we couldn't find them. As in, how hard did you look? Because I know several who are always looking for work. And, and I was just going to say, try harder. <laughs> I mean, I've, you know, it's uh, speaking for myself, I know many, many brown, black actors who never get cast, but yeah. uh, Chris Lilly keeps getting ABC shows. So um, I find it hard to believe that they... I, I'm not questioning your experience. I'm just saying maybe if you look harder or just advertise in different spaces, you'll find those talented actors and actresses because, yeah, why are white people playing brown people in 2021? You will find them. You will find them. Just, just you know... Yeah, make, keep looking. Like you said, keep looking. Um, widen the circles in which you're advertising. Um, you know, the, the, even when I was walking here along the way and I was looking at the, the demographics of the people in these spaces, the festival spaces, it's usually the same demographics. I know in Sydney they shifted parts of their programs from the city to the western suburbs of Sydney, so they had programs across the suburbs and they got different audiences and they realised, well, you know, there's a matter of class and access and so I think just, just try and push yourself into those communities because you will find. Okay, thanks. Thank um, I think on that note, I think we're, yeah, we're pretty much done. Um, thank you, everyone, for coming out, and thank you, Rhonda, for this fantastic thank conversation. Thank you so much. Thank, thank you. you. Uh, Rhonda will now head over there. Um, if you want Rhonda to sign a copy of her book, which is available, are, are, are others available there as well, or just coming away? I think water? so. Yeah, yeah. So there are other books of hers. She's written eleven, so there's a ton over there available. Uh, buy them, get her to sign it, and uh, have a good evening. Thank and you. And Sammy's book too. Yeah. <laughs>